0: Welcome to episode 94 of the Energy Balance Podcast, where we teach you how to live without constant hunger and cravings, fatigue, brain fog, poor sleep, and other low-energy symptoms by maximizing your cellular energy. I'm Jay Feldman. I'm a health coach and independent health researcher, and joining me again today is my good friend, Mike Fave. Mike and I have been studying health and nutrition together for a long time now, and Mike also draws on his experiences from working within the healthcare industry. This episode is part two of our discussion going over a paper regarding the effects of stress on our mitochondria, and in today's episode in particular, we'll be discussing why uncoupling is harmful in certain contexts and how the polyunsaturated fats or PUFA cause constant low-grade uncoupling. We'll also be discussing the involvement of uncoupling mitochondrial biogenesis, autophagy, heat shock proteins, and hypoxia-inducible factors in the stress response. We'll also go over how stress prevents our mitochondria from effectively producing energy, how chronic stress causes insulin resistance, high blood pressure, weight gain, depression, and cardiovascular disease, how sugar and fat cravings result from stress, and why listening to them is actually beneficial, and how adaptations to stress get passed on through generations. If this is the first time you're listening into this podcast, then after listening through today's episode, I'd highly recommend you go back and listen to episodes 1 through 7 where we took some time to build a foundation as far as the bioenergetic view of health is concerned. To check out these show notes for today's episode, you can head over to jfeldmanwellness.com slash podcast, where you can take a look at these studies and articles and anything else that we referenced throughout today's episode. And if you are dealing with any low energy symptoms or chronic health issues, maybe these are related to some of the issues we've been talking about throughout these, uh, the series or part one in terms of insulin resistance and blood pressure issues, weight gain, depression, cardiovascular disease, and other related chronic health issues, or if you're dealing with any other low-energy symptoms, this could be chronic cravings and hunger, low-energy or fatigue, chronic pain, weight gain, digestive symptoms, brain fog, poor sleep, hormonal imbalances, or various other low-energy symptoms or chronic health issues, then head over to jfeldmanwellness.com where you can sign up for a free energy balance mini course, where I'll explain how these different symptoms and conditions are really caused by lack of energy. And I'll also walk you through the main things that you can do from a diet and lifestyle perspective to maximize your cellular energy and resolve these symptoms and conditions. So to sign up for that free energy balance mini course, head over to jfeldmanwellnesscom energy. And with that, let's get started. Things I didn't want to like, we kind of glossed over it, but I want to make sure that we explain what it looks like is the inhibition of the respiratory chain activity. I just wanted to, you know, they talked about complex one at one point, so I want to just show a diagram here of what that would look like, what, what that actually means for someone who's not as uh, familiar with our how we produce energy in the mitochondria. Okay, so just the basics here as far as mitochondrial respiration goes this is just showing it with glucose coming in, but of course, you could have fatty acids coming in as well uh or ketones at some points and things but anyway so we have glucose going through glycolysis and then through the citric acid cycle also called the krebs cycle and that produces nadh and fadh2 those are also produced in glycolysis they're also produced in beta oxidation if you have a fatty acid coming in or a fat coming in uh and so those products then go over to the electron transport chain which is still inside the mitochondria but it's not you know supposedly along the, the membrane and there are four complexes here of what's called a electron transport chain and the this again the idea here being is that when the electrons are dropped off and transported along this chain it creates what's called a proton gradient and then that proton gradient is used to produce atp and so the important piece here just being that various all sorts of different toxic things or I mean, it depends on what you consider toxic, but tons of different things can block the function along any of these processes. Uh, but specifically, they were talking about glucocorticoids blocking complex one here, which blocks the offloading of electrons from NADH and the conversion to NAD. We've talked about this a lot because it's also something that happens when you have excess fat oxidation, which does the same thing, but through a different mechanism. There's a ton of uh, there's a ton of things that'll block complex one. There's different things that'll block complex four. There's different things that'll block different steps of the citric acid cycle. But the point here being that if you're blocking anything around here, you're going to be reducing ATP production, and that is going to drive a stress state where you then need to activate the backup pathways to force this to go on more and more to produce some amount of ATP. And uh, yeah, we've we talked about this in the uh, fatty liver disease series especially, but I just wanted to give somebody a, a picture if they aren't exactly sure of what we mean when we talk about blocking some component of, of the uh, respiratory chain, you know, that being the electron transport chain or something else in, in terms of mitochondrial respiration.
1: Yep. I don't have, well, I guess we'll get to it when we, I was going to mention the fatty acid piece, but you already did that we'll get to it. We talk about in the stress that you actually, you have the glucocorticoids blocking complex one. And you also have high amounts of fat oxidation, which causes uh-huh. an issue between complex 1 and complex 2. And then both of those will create increased ROS generation. Like those are both direct mechanisms of increased ROS with decreased ATP. Right, right.
0: Exactly. So going back to the study, we discussed all of this and now on to the catecholamines. So they state together with glucocorticoids, catecholamines are the primary hormonal mediators of the fight or flight response. Adrenaline and noradrenaline affect mitochondrial metabolism mainly by mo- mobilizing energy substrates from body reserves to augment their ability for oxidation. Catecholamines stimulate lipolysis, which is the release of fat, and glycogenolysis, which is the release of glycogen, especially in skeletal muscle, by interacting with B1 and B2 adrenal receptors. In addition, adrenaline acts through the G uh, protein coupled beta2 adrenergic receptor to stimulate adenylyl cyclase activity and cAMP production. Activating protein kinase A.
1: Those are all second messengers in the cell. Just in case right, anybody. exactly.
0: Yeah, it's just talking about the, the mechanism through which.
1: Yeah, exactly. And this signaling pathway
0: modulates numerous processes by stimulating phosphorylation of the cAMP response element binding protein CREB, and by activating proxisome proliferator active activated receptor gamma uh, coactivator one alpha, so PGC one alpha which exerts downstream effects that stimulate mitochondrial biogenesis and oxidative phosphorylation, thus controlling adaptive thermogenesis in adipose tissue and, and
1: skeletal muscle. And we talked about this before in the box. That's a, the PGC1-alpha is what we were talking about before, where if you have enough during stress, you can meet a demand, but if you have too much, you get mitochondrial biogenesis, but you can also get cardiomyopathy.
0: Right, and that's just in that one specific instance they were looking. It can cause any sort of degeneration, but the point being that all of these things are part of a stress response that has a function. It doesn't mean we want to encourage that to happen just because it not happening well is a bad thing, right? If you block our ability to adapt, that is bad. It doesn't mean we want to force our adaptation to stress. And yeah, this, the reason why I was wanting to discuss this is some of these things might recompile. Again, when it comes to hormesis, things like PGC-1 alphas you know, are focused on a lot. Um, and these are all just means through which the catecholamines function. And I know they went through glucocorticoids first, but as we mentioned, the catecholamines get released first, and then the glucocorticoids are, are second in terms of uh, the chain of stress, uh, stress activity. Yep. And so to talk further, I was going to go into thermogenesis
1: specifically with uncoupling. Do you have anything to mention first? No, I, I'm right waiting for uncoupling.
0: Yeah. So <laughs> catecholamines also enhance thermogenesis in brown adipose tissue. During this process, energy derived from oxidation of fuel substrates is dissipated as heat rather than being stored as ATP, and this is uncoupling. Uncoupling occurs via beta-3 adrenergic stimulation and downstream regulation of specific uncoupling proteins. Uh, and then they say that the regulated uncoupling caused by these proteins attenuates mitochondrial reactive oxygen species production and protects against cellular damage. So there's a few things to discuss here, but this is something that again, uncoupling and brown adipose tissue are highlighted excessively in the hormesis realm or the mm. pro-stress realm or the ketogenic diet realm, all of these things, where they're suggesting that this is a state that you want to induce. And it's not that uncoupling is inherently bad, but what it does do, as I think they mentioned, is that it, dissipates, it causes the, the substrate to be dissipated as heat rather than being stored as ATP. And it's a way to burn off extra substrate if there's excess substrate and you already have enough ATP. So that's the beneficial situation. We've talked about this before, but you produce a lot of energy that leads to. And I guess I'll show the other uh, diagram real quick. The one that I just well, had
1: overfeeding up. increases on coupling as well, which is kind of what you're getting at.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So basically, when you're in this state, if you have excessive amounts of ATP, that's going to stop up this chain as well. And so uh, there's. That will lead to reactive oxygen species production uh, and that will lead to uncoupling which we'll get to in a second but it's not harmful in this state because you have a lot of atp you have a lot of co2 which isn't shown in this diagram Uh, but that is very different from inducing uncoupling by blocking something along here producing a lot of reactive oxygen species and then the cell saying that's so dangerous this is going to to cause a lot of cellular damage we need to stop that from happening and so the way they do that is through uncoupling, and it happens when you're stimulated by adrenaline or various other stress hormones, uh, and, and it also happen, as you mentioned, Mike, in response to fat oxidation. And so that looks like this. So this is uh, showing an uncoupling protein. This one's showing uncoupling protein 1, where what it's doing is instead of having the proton gradient that allows for us to produce ATP, it removes the gradient by allowing the protons to come back through. And so what this means is that we're not producing ATP anymore and it stops the production of reactive oxygen species. So it's kind of like if you had a car and you threw it in neutral and rev the engine a lot, you're using gas, but you're not going anywhere. And in a state where the engine wasn't working well and it was producing smoke or, you know, it was all sorts of damaging things going on. That's helpful, right? You You want to like you want to stop that from happening. And that's what the uncoupling protein allows for. Uh, but in a state where you actually want to go somewhere, where meaning you want your body to do something and function, you want to be producing ATP. And so this is beneficial in the context that you uh, you need to turn off oxidative stress or in the state that you have high ATP levels and you're, you don't need more and so you can burn off the extra, extra substrate you have there at the moment. And then you can also, it'll also activate other backup things like increasing mitochondrial biogenesis. Which, again, we have two situations here. One, you're producing more mitochondria because you've got really effective energy production and you want to produce more, drive complexity, and better function. Or two, you're trying to adapt to future stress and you're doing this in a low ATP state. And so that's where that difference comes from. But another thing that will do the same thing that this uncoupling protein will do is polyunsaturated fats. So if this membrane is made up of a lot of polyunsaturated fats, you'll have it'll be leaky, leaky to these protons Which will make your mitochondria much less coupled and make it so that you can't produce ATP as efficiently. Mm -hmm. And again, that's not ideal. We want really tightly coupled mitochondria. You want to produce that ATP really, really effectively and then allow that to create a coupling. You don't want to have already decoupled mitochondria that can't produce ATP efficiently. And you see this, you'd mentioned this before, Mike. We talked about it in terms of aging and polyunsaturated fats in the membrane, where the species that have more polyunsaturated fats here and are more leaky, they have higher metabolic rates but they produce less energy and they age way faster and they they have way shorter lifespans whereas the uh, animals that have much more saturated membranes are much less leaky they produce energy much better and they live a lot longer and they function a lot better and they have better you know higher uh, brain complexity and things like that now within a species a higher metabolic rate which is when the this is constant and there's no more poof in here but you have a higher metabolic rate That means you're just producing more ATP and that's associated with reduced aging. So that's the kind of separation there. But the point being that when you have the equivalent of uncoupling, it drives aging um, in the wrong context. And yeah, I'll link back to those aging episodes. I think I already mentioned I would. So uh, that'll kind of explain uh, that concept in more detail.
1: Yeah. Also, when when you have more PUFA inside the membrane there and you're running higher amounts of fat oxidation... Then you and you're creating larger amounts of ROS, that ROS is more likely to attack that PUFA. You're more likely to get peroxy, peroxidized fatty acids. So yes. you have a you have a dual negative effect where you have like the, the H plus ions are able to move across that wall there if there's more PUFA because the PUFA's tails are bent, which creates uh-huh. more space, which makes the membrane more fluid. And then you send these can move across, and then you have decreased ATP production. And then with the excess fatty acids, you get more ROS because we talked about the blocking at, uh, with between complex one and complex two. And then essentially you just, now you have a leakier membrane, less ATP production and more, uh, peroxidized fatty acids and damage to the mitochondrial structure. So overall it's just negative. Like it's just a hard, <laughs> hard yeah. L for the mitochondria if you saturate them with polyunsaturated fats. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. They, they actually talk about this inside the study directly. Um, in that section underneath, um, so you said the, it's a, you highlighted the regulated uncoupling caused by these proteins attenuates mitochondrial ROS production and protects against cellular damage. Uncoupling protein 2 and 3 regulate protein, proton leakage in the heart, which can be part cardioproductive in ischemia preconditioning or pathologic in ischemia reperfusion models. Increased activity of uncoupling-2 decreases insulin secretion from pancreatic beta cells. Conversely, uncoupling protein-2 knockout mice display increased beta cell mass and retain the capacity to secrete insulin in the face of chronic hyperglycemia or hyperlipidemia. In addition, uncoupling protein-2 knockout mice produce more superoxide, which chronically activates the uh, NF-kappa-beta, nuclear factor kappa-beta system, and increases resistance to infection. Of note, mice without uncoupling protein 2 are more susceptible than normal mice to chemically induced colon cancer, implying that a general reduction of uncoupling protein 2 activity might have uh, undesirable side effects. This is important because essentially what you're seeing is that um, the uncoupling protein 2 is a release valve when you have too much ROS. It's protecting the cell from that excess amount of ROS. Now, when you get rid of Uncoupling Protein 2, like they did in these transgenic mice, they basically spliced out the Uncoupling 2 protein from their genes, so they, didn't, they couldn't produce the protein. Then they, the mice, pro, they produce larger amounts of superoxide, so larger amounts of reactive oxygen species. Now, it protected them from the infection, because the respiratory burst from immune cells are, are, it's essentially like bombing microbes, but it also increased their susceptibility to cancer, because the cells had large amounts of ROS being generated at the mitochondria and specifically in the colon. The other thing that was interesting here is that the increased activity of uncoupling protein 2 decreases insulin secretion. Why would it do that? Well, if you have cells that are overloaded with substrate and producing large amount of ROS because they have blocks and they're they're increasing uncoupling protein 2 to dissipate the protons and lower ROS, uh, dissipate the protons as heat and lower the ROS, um, that's being produced, then you don't want to have insulin driving more substrate into the cell. That would be counterproductive because you're already having a bottleneck. So when you knock out that ability, it's like, oh yeah, the mice didn't become insulin resistant. It's like, yeah, they didn't become insulin resistant because, and so it allowed them to just continually continually produce ROS in their mitochondria which are already overloaded in ROS because, they were, because of a block that they were having in general and then it, that led to the formation or the more likely formation of cancer because now you just have mitochondria overloaded with ROS and no release valve to stop that. So mm-hmm. it's a very like very interesting uh, little explanation there uh, as far as like the importance of of looking at why and where in the context of the uncoupling proteins. They're not just good in general, they serve a purpose. So when you have ex- excess ROS you, you, and the mitochondria wants to lower that, okay, now we have we're going to create this release valve so we can lower the ROS production uncoupling proteins. But that can happen in two states, as you as you discussed, Jay, is you can have a large amount of ATP production and a large amount of energy production. And it's like, okay, we, we don't need as much right now. Like we have an adequate amount, so let's dissipate some of this as heat, which isn't a loss because you're still producing carbon dioxide, you're still producing heat. Great. Now there's another situation where it's like the chain is all jacked up and it's like we're just throwing out ROS. Like our engine is just smoking. So let's like let's lower the flow through the chain by moving stuff through the uncoupling proteins and lower the amount of smoke that's produced so we don't destroy the engine essentially so you have two Mm. different scenarios and they're very different even though the proteins are upregulated in both and it's important to understand that context and then you're seeing the effects here with the mice when you take out that uncoupling protein in different scenarios
0: yeah yeah exactly and kind of goes back to what we were discussing earlier where you block the adaptive response and you get bad effects so you know that means that we must want to just increase the adaptive response all the time and it's like well not really unless it's in a proper context which uh yeah like a defense the absence of a defensive reaction doesn't you know being bad doesn't make the defensive reaction good and just as a as to share another another quick diagram showing the effects of uncoupling so there's a diagram here it's not great you know it's not like a great diagram it's not comprehensive but it just shows some of the effects of mitochondrial uncoupling in different areas. It talks about causing uh, macroautophagy, specific autophagy. It uh, talks about driving lipolysis, meaning the release of free fatty acids, part of the stress response. It talks about uh, in the uh, cell how it reduces reactive oxygen species generation, reduces ATP production, which then leads to increases in AMP kinase just all of these things that again are discussed as supposed you know supposing to be beneficial in terms of uh their hormetic effects but in reality are just markers of stress when they're activated in the wrong context again as a, you know, when it's activated due to uh low energy and high reactive oxygen state uh, species states versus high energy high reactive oxygen species states yep so moving on to some of the cytokines and other Uh, related factors. They describe that the release of pro-inflammatory cytokines is a major component of the response to stressors such as ischemia reperfusion injury, trauma, cachexia, induced by infections with bacteria and viruses, various cancers, and heart failure. Cytokines such as TNF-alpha, interleukin-1-alpha, and interleukin-1-beta can activate the transcriptional activity of PGC-1-alpha via direct phosphorylation By P38-mitogen-activated protein kinase, which is MAP kinase, MAP K, resulting in stabilization and activation of PGC1-alpha protein and increased downstream expression of genes linked to mitochondrial uncoupling and energy expenditure. So again, coming full circle here is that the increased activity of these inflammatory cytokines, uh, which are are produced in response to stress and inflammation, causes the same hormetic downstream effects leading to uncoupling and increased short-term energy expenditure, which we'll talk about again in a second. Uh, but yeah, this just being another major component, just like the other stress hormones, just on a kind of a different level, um, a, a smaller, more local level that that has this sort of effect. And uh, I like that they talk about this happening in all sorts of different scenarios, again, showing how ubiquitous it is, how generalized the stress response is, whether it's in response to cancer or infections or ischemia reperfusion. it. Reperfusion injury, and these are all states uh, that you see a low ATP, high reactive oxygen species uh, situation going on, and so it's it lends a lot of credence to that whole idea of being the real problem as opposed to uh, as opposed to not getting enough stress. And I cited a few of those studies in my hormesis articles, and we may have talked about them in the hormesis series as well.
1: Yeah, I just wanted to add two things here. The first one is that. Um, it's interesting. So you have the increased mitochondrial uncoupling and energy expenditure. So that energy expenditure is because you still have, with the increased mitochondrial coupling in these situations, you're still at an energetic deficit. So you're just moving uh-huh. your, all that, all this flow and, and the, the substrate that you're, you're pushing through the mitochondria are moving as heat, but you're still ATP deficient. So You're still trying to push stuff through, <laughs> not get the ATP and then move it through uncoupling because the mitochondria are, are under stress. They're under r- excessive ROS. Another one that the other thing I wanted to talk about really quick was just what is ischemia reperfusion? Because we've mentioned it a few times. Ischemia reperfusion is essentially if I cut off blood and blood flow and oxygen supply to a tissue, um, and then I al- allow blood flow to go return after, it causes some serious damage to the tissue. The question is why? Well, if I cut off blood supply and oxygen to the tissue, then I can cause large amounts of damage inside the mitochondria through the hypoxia that develops and lack of uh, oxygen as an electron acceptor, and then i forcing a movement towards glycolysis. So you cause all types, types of disruption, and then you return oxygen and, and nutrient and substrate to that cell or those tissues, and now you have this, the mitochondria and the tissue are damaged, and you're trying to move substrate through. So, and then that causes increases in ROS and, and a whole bunch of adaptive response or stress responses that cause damage inside those cells and tissues. So, and mm-hmm. a lot of times ischemia reperfusion is is rescued. They like do all these types of like antioxidant plant compounds and all those type and things like that. And a lot of what they're doing is they're just helping to mop up and deal with the ROS that's generated in these situations. And also some of them help to activate these adaptive responses that protect the mitochondria under the stressful situations. So it's it's the it doesn't the, the ischemia reperfusion is essentially an example of the deranged metabolism stuff that we're talking about. And it's a huge example in the literature that they always look mm-hmm. at because there's a paradox before, right? Where it's like if I take out blood flow to a tissue, well when I restore it, it should be getting better. But right. what you usually see the injury and that's what you see in heart attacks and myocardial infarctions is you have an ischemia, you have a thrombosis or an embolus blocks off the blood supply to a particular piece of heart tissue. That heart tissue dies because it lacks oxygen, depending on how long it's blocked. But then even if it doesn't die, because it got blocked, when the blood flow returns, you get an area of damage to that tissue and you wind up getting fibrosis um, from that damage if you don't uh, treat it effectively.
0: Yeah. Yeah, 100%. 100%. So... Moving forward here, uh, they talk about a few other cytokines of things. They talk about the heat shock proteins, again, being one that's cited a lot because people talk about using temperature exposure, specifically cold temperature, to induce uh, hormetic effects. All of these things just being part of the same pathway. Uh, and Then they go on and talk specifically more about reactive oxygen species and NF-kappa-beta uh, so i'm just going to talk a little bit more about that unless you had anything to mention here they discuss endotoxin a little bit which i think was um, the main reason i wanted to mention this
1: i just wanted to say with the heat shock proteins this one this one always kind of gets to my nerves a little bit it's like oh we want to induce these proteins and because they're going to refold all the like improperly folded proteins and it's like <laughs> why were they improperly folded in the first place <laughs> yeah the- and why
0: yeah why aren't they just naturally getting or like not naturally but why aren't they being refolded on their own just like autophagy like why do you just why do you think you just have a bunch of damaged cells laying around waiting to undergo autophagy like that's not how how that
1: works yeah and then they say it here they say the heat shock proteins constitute a highly conserved and functionally interactive network of intracellular chaperones so the chaperones are just kind of like these these uh complexes that go and and um attach the proteins and can fix their structure essentially and they say that this this disaggregate, refold and renature misfolded proteins resulting from various environmental and physical and chemical stresses. And they say heat shock protein 27, 70, and 90 have been implicated in protection against apoptosis induced by numerous numerous signals such as heat shock, nutrient withdrawal, ROS, endoplasmic reticulum stress, proteasome inhibition, UV radiation, and chemotherapy-induced DNA damage. Heat shock proteins promote cell survival by preventing mitochondrial outer membrane permeabilization. And subsequent cytochrome C release caspase activation and apoptos- 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 apoptosome assembly. So the heat shock proteins, again, are an adaptive response. And it's like when you have misfolded proteins or damaged protein structures, a question, why are we having them in the first place? But when you have those structures, they signal the cell and mitochondria, hey, we're jacked up. We need to, we need to, you know, start over. So we're going to implode. And then we're going to, like, the body will make use of the components or re- reassemble them or get rid of them, whatever it is. And you make a new cell, whatever it is. But the heat shock proteins stop that from happening because they go and they fix those proteins. So are they good in a situation where you have a bunch of misfolded or aggregated proteins, etc.? Sure. Sure. That's helpful to be able to, to fix that. However, the question is, is why are you having those misfolded damaged proteins in the first place? And should we be inducing them, the heat shock proteins? Like, am I going to go do something, for example, like generate large amounts of ROS or cause nutrient withdrawal so that I have damaged proteins and then, oh, wow, I'm, a- I'm activating my heat shocks and now I'm better. I No, <laughs> I'm going to avoid those situations in the first place so that I don't have to activate the heat shock proteins because the proteins didn't become aggregated or misfolded from the start. That's the, that, and that's a lot of the same arguments. It's the same thinking. With all these mm. different pathways, but the heat shocks are another one. those ones I always laugh a little bit because it's like let's let's get a team to fix this broken house because we built it like crap in the first place. <laughs> it's like why don't yeah. you build a house the right way to start
0: right, or it's like let's start breaking down this house so that somebody else will come and fix it yeah. <laughs> like get rid of it like you know it's like I don't know maybe you're like trying to create an insurance claim or something you know so you <laughs> damage the car yourself so that it can get scrapped and you can get a new one <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Anyway, okay. so moving on to some specifics here, and again, I like talk. I, I like this next part because they discuss things like ionizing radiation and endotoxin being part of these same pathways or activating the same pathways. So they say that the uh, NF kappa beta pathway is highly sensitive to changes in the intracellular redox environment, and this can be activated by oxidative stress. So this just again mentioning that inefficient uh, energy production is going to activate these inflammatory pathways. And that includes things uh, that can be induced by the following things. So they say activating signals, such as the pro-inflammatory cytokines TNF-alpha or uh, interleukin-6, irradiation, endotoxin, and reactive oxygen species can converge toward IKB uh, kinase, which subsequently phosphorylates SIR-19 and SIR-23 on the inhibitory subunit of NF-kappa-beta and causes its (laughs) ubiquitization and release on the nf kappa b complex basically just saying that it's getting activated so just pointing out here that things that cause oxidative stress and inhibit energy production like ionizing radiation endotoxin and inflammatory cytokines which is those are going to be reduced or produced by any stress uh factor that's causing stress uh is going to induce uh nf kappa beta the nf kappa beta pathway um and they go on and they mention this again also there's one other pathway here that there's a reason specifically why i like to mention this one so they say uh, another protective mechanism against reactive oxygen species derived cell death involves local activation of of c-jun and terminal kinase which is jnk in the mitochondria a pathway particularly significant in tumor cell progression the reason i like mentioning that one is because there's a study cited by none other than robert lustig one of his main studies i believe that he uses to put forth his idea that uh fructose is a metabolic poison just like alcohol, and it causes fatty liver disease, and and on and on. And it's a study where they gave rats a ton of fructose, and uh, I want to say it was independent of glucose, and it caused this major stress reaction that activated this JNK pathway, which is an inflammatory pathway. So for one, if someone's in favor of hormesis, they should be in favor of of ingesting fructose because it activates this hormetic pathway that they all are trying to activate through other means anyway. Uh, So you might as well get your little doses of fructose throughout the day for your little monopharmesis Again, I don't understand why <laughs> they just decided that some stressors are not good and some are good, um, when from their view, fructose really shouldn't be any different. But then when you look at that study further, they actually, uh, for the second, for like the treatment, they used something that blocked the metabolites of polyunsaturated fats. Um, one of the, it, I want to say it blocked the LOX enzyme or some product of the LOX enzyme. And it completely inhibited the effect of the fructose and activating these stress pathways. So basically, even if you ingest, if the rat ingested way too much free fructose, uh, it still wouldn't even activate these stress pathways unless there was PUFA uh, and PUFA metabolites available. So anyway, that's why I like highlighting that part.
1: Yeah. With these ones um, I want to highlight two things. So, on the nf kappa beta pathway the section that you read underneath it it says the p50 and p65 dimer trans so those are the units of nf kappa beta that will they then move thereafter to the nucleus or mo- so they move to the nucleus and bind to the kappa beta domain of target genes initiating transcription of several antioxidant genes some of manganese superoxide dismutase and uh, uh gamma glutamyl cysteine synthetase and essentially what they're doing there is when you have this exposure to oxidative stress or excess ROS, NF-kappa-beta gets activated and then it signals the antioxidant enzymes to come and help deal with that oxidative stress. Because a lot of people are like, oh, well, this is good. It's like, well, you, you have these enzymes being upregulated because you're, you're signaling high amounts of ROS. So it's mm-hmm. like, it's, it's good because it helps to deal with the ROS, but you, the goal would be to avoid signaling large amounts of ROS from the beginning. And I think that that's, That's an important distinction, right? It's like, let's cause a damaging situation and then that will induce these protective factors to come on board. Or let's, why don't we just avoid causing the damaging situation in the first place? Like, there's, yeah, that's, that was the first one I wanted to, and I don't know if you want to add something to that, Jay, before I talk to the next point.
0: Yeah. So I just thought of a good analogy. I don't know why we haven't thought of this one before. Um, but it's like, so firemen are really, They're great. They're really helpful for putting out fires, and it's really good to have them. But that doesn't mean we want to be creating fires so that the firemen have a job to do, right? We just want to make sure that there are firemen available, but we still want to minimize the amount of fires that we create. Like The fires are not a good thing just because firemen cleaning them up is a good thing. And so when you do a study where you block, like you take away all the firemen and you create fires and it's really bad, it doesn't mean that you want to just get the firemen like active all the time, always putting out fires. You just want to have the firemen there. So that you, they can be there if needed, but you don't want to be creating more and more fires. That's, that's like the, the misnomer there is just because the firemen get activated when you create fires does not mean you want
1: to create fires, but you do want to have firemen. Yep. Yeah, exactly. The second one I wanted to talk about really quick is it's, the, it's on the left side. It's the bottom starting paragraph. This says a generation of ROS. Uh-huh. And what it says is the generation of ROS from mitochondria is a major signaling pathway response to varying oxygen levels. Cells exposed to hypoxia activate the transcription uh, hypoxic inducible factor 1, which is HIF1, and downstream targets that regulate glycolysis, mitochondrial oxygen consumption, erythropoiesis, angiogenesis, and cellular survival. This pathway is a major pathway I think for cancer Um, and the reason I say that is when you start to create these situations with larger amounts of hypoxia, this factor eight hypoxia inducible factor one comes on board, and it's it what happens is the mitochondria start to shift towards glycolysis because you don't have oxygen, so you can't run cell respiration, and then the mitochondrial oxygen consumption will would ha- like have to concurrently decrease because you don't have the oxygen, and then you have erythropoiesis, so you have increase in red blood cell production. Why? Because now. The cells are saying, hey, we don't have enough oxygen, so the body's saying, okay, we're gonna make more red blood cells to carry oxygen to the tissues, and then we're gonna increase angiogenesis, same thing. We're gonna increase the production of uh, of vasculature to su- that supplies to the tissue so that we can bring more uh, red blood cells on board to supply more oxygen, and then these things also, they help to promote cellular survival, but when you don't have that oxygen as we talked about, you create a lot of damage inside the mitochondria from the ROS, and then you shift towards that lactate metabolism. And that lactate metabolism metabolism is what we see with the Warburg effect. So there's these these stress pathways. It's like, yes, this is like if you if, it, it's a, an intelligent system, right? Where it's like, okay, we don't have enough oxygen, so we're gonna we're gonna build we're gonna build all these things so that we're lowering our oxygen consumption, but then we're increasing our oxygen supply through red blood cells, vasculature. Um, and then we're also, and then we're moving towards glycolysis, so we're not using as much oxygen, the mitochondria aren't using as much oxygen, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But that's, that's pathology still. Because those, all of those adaptive changes, if chronically maintained, can lead, these are like, these are all features, minus maybe erythropoiesis, that you see in cancer. You see increased angiogenesis, you see, um, increased lactate production, and then you see increased, um... Uh, like you change, you see changes in mitochondrial oxygen consumption. So there's a, it's. I just like pointing that out again. The body isn't made, has adaptive processes, but there's only so much that the body can adapt to. So when you have, exten- it's the same thing. If you have extended activation of this situation, this extended hypoxia, then th- eventually these adaptive processes break down and they wind up causing their own problems. For example, like a cancer, where you the cancer drives angiogenesis to itself. The cancer moves towards that lactate metabolism. So, just important things I think to to keep in mind and seeing this like this switch with things where you initially you can adapt, but then after a while, boom, you have you're now you're in problems. Now you're in metabolic dysfunction. Now the mitochondrial machinery is destroyed. There's an excess of ROS, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. So, moving on, they begin to discuss the specifics of what's going on in the mitochondria in acute and chronic stress. And so in first talking about acute stress, they say tissue oxygen consumption and total energy expenditure are increased during the initial phase of the acute stress response. We mentioned this already, but they had focused up until this point just on what was happening outside of the mitochondria with the release of substrate. But so they're saying inside you have increased energy expenditure. Indeed, energy expenditure is initially enhanced by as much as 200%. Despite significant hyperglycemia, the observed decrease in the respiratory quotient, uh, an RQ of 0.8, suggests that a significant a significant portion of this energy derives from lipid oxidation occurring primarily in the mitochondria. So I guess just to pause there, they're saying that this these stress pathways will almost will as much as double uh, our energy production in order to deal with the major energy demand that's on hand, uh, yet. This is happening from fat oxidation due to the uh, the means through which we have to activate this uh, energy production, and they observe that by seeing a low RQ, which means low carbon dioxide production. And uh, yeah, so we're seeing basically a, a forced reliance on fat oxidation, and we kind of alluded to this earlier, but this is part of why inducing fat oxidation outside of the state is not a good thing, because it parallels all the things that are happening during stress, including... Increased react- reactive oxygen species production, uh, in inefficient electron transport chain activity, inefficient ATP production, and on.
1: From- decreased CO2. Yeah, decreased CO2. Which is they directly stating it here. so you're- And then the other yeah. thing too to keep in mind is that they say despite significant hyperglycemia, it's not surprising right. that in this situation you have hyperglycemia if you're moving towards fat oxidation, and and then these pathways feed forward on themselves, right? Because You have, in this state where you have higher amounts of blood lipids, you will have a Randall effect to some extent, where you have the cells moving towards more fat oxidation and less glucose oxidation, which, and then you also have, so you have have the cells oxidizing less glucose, and then you have the liver increasing glucose output through gluconeogenesis. So you have, like you have, and this is where you see the hyperglycemia. This is like a combination of those factors. And then the RQ is literally directly showing decreased CO2 output. And the reason you see that, and we discussed it before, is that more CO2 is generated during carb oxidation than fat oxidation. And we have an episode discussing the mechanisms of this, et cetera.
0: Yeah. And so, and just to clarify as far as the Randall effect goes, it's not just happening because there are free fatty acids available, but because there, are, uh, there is this dysfunctional respiration that then drives fat oxidation which then causes a low NAD to NADH ratio, which then inhibits certain aspects of the Krebs cycle and inhibits certain aspects of glycolysis, which favors fat oxidation. So it's not just about the availability of one substrate or the other, but rather various signals that are involved. Uh, so yeah, I just wanted to, to make that clear.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So moving on, they then say that although a burst in mitochondrial function is necessary for survival during acute stress, for example, in a bout of exercise, Excessive demands on mitochondria during critical illness, such as trauma, surgery, or sepsis, can be detrimental to the cell. Glucocorticoid induced hyperglycemia and insulin resistance, possibly owing to the effects of stress hormones, cytokines, and nitric oxide on the insulin signaling pathway, are common in these conditions, and their severity correlates strongly with increased morbidity and mortality. And so it's kind of another way of just saying that if this continues on and you're in a more degenerated state, I guess it's two things. One, if this thing continues on more and more, you're going to be dealing with uh reduced capacity to handle this response to stress but then also if you're already in a degenerated state where you're undergoing trauma or sepsis or critical illness then you're not gonna be able to respond as effectively as they said due to the effects of stress hormones cytokines and nitric oxide which are all effective they mentioned on on the insulin si- insulin signaling pathway but in reality it doesn't have so much to do with insulin as much as it does just their effects on respiration, where nitric oxide is pretty effective at blocking complex 4 activity, blocking it in the Krebs cycle. So, you know, you you have inhibited respiration that is basically further impairing the stress response. And that's correlating, as they said, with increased morbidity and mortality.
1: Yep. Yeah. So you're just basically digging yourself deeper in the hole. That's and yeah. it's it, the stress hormones, which we already talked about, catecholamines, glucocorticoids, the cytokines, IL6, tumor necrosis factor alpha. Uh, what was it? ILB, and then um, and then now you have nitric oxide, which they also discussed above as well. But basically, the the trifecta of get destroyed. Yeah,
0: yeah, and and they describe it further here, and they say that you know they converge on how this is happening with low ATP and inhibited electron transport chain, and so they say a thirty percent reduction in complex one activity. Remember, that's the complex we, we had highlighted before with
1: uh, respiration. That was the NAD one. That's the yes. one heavy with NAD.
0: Yeah, so that's the one where NADH is dropping off its electrons and it's favored during carboxidation and disfavored or inhibited during fat oxidation. And uh so it says a 30% reduction in complex one activity with decreased ATP concentrations, depletion of antioxidant activity, and increased nitric oxide production has been described in skeletal muscle biopsies from patients with sepsis and were related to shock severity and adverse outcomes. In addition, striking ultra and functional abnormalities were described in liver mitochondria of surgical intensive care patients. So what they're basically saying here is basically when you aren't producing energy effectively and you have high amounts of nitric oxide and you've depleted your antioxidants, you've continued this on so far that your antioxidants aren't able to keep mopping it up, you're, you've run out of firemen because there's so many fires, uh, this is what happens in, in severe shock and is associated with adverse outcomes and, and intensive care, you know, surgical
1: intensive care and, and on from there. And the next line too says, these abnormalities could be prevented or reversed with insulin therapy and strict glycemic control. What essentially they're doing with the insulin is they're forcing that carb movement into the cell and oxidation. So They're saying if we force glucose oxidation with exogenous insulin, we can minimize some of these negative effects that happens when the cells get shifted over towards that fat oxidation etc 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 um that we just talked the whole pathway that we just talked about which is essentially what we've dis- <laughs> we've described as well is like you need to get back to glucose oxidation and you have to start to minimize the fat oxidation and address the dysfunction that's happening in in multiple layers inside the cells here and for the, for the shock and sepsis patients though, the main factor that they have going on is that the endotoxin is blocking their respiration on a systemic level and causing, and it does it directly at the mitochondria, but it also does it by upregulating tumor necrosis factor alpha, the catecholamines, glucocorticoids, uh, IL-6, it it literally is a potent activator of all of these stress hormones and stress compound and nitric oxide that we've talked about. It stimulates the immune cells to produce nitric oxide and respiratory bursts. So it's, that the that's why the sepsis is such a large picture here because you're essentially um it causes the feature of all of this dysfunction um yeah
0: yeah yeah definitely so that essentially describes what's going on in the acute stress situation we have the burst of backup energy production through driving fat oxidation at a major cost and Now, digging into the chronic stress side, we see what happens when we have to rely on the acutely stressful pathways uh, or the adaptations to acute stress over time. So, they state here that although glucocorticoids are crucial for survival during stress, excessive cortisol secretion or chronic administration of synthetic glucocorticoids at pharmacological doses, endogenous or exogenous, Cushing, Cushing syndrome, respectively, have long been associated with hypertension, depression, immune suppression, osteoporosis and the metabolic syndrome which they describe as visceral obesity, insulin resistance, dyslipidemia, hypercoagulation and arterial hypertension as well as atherosclerosis and cardiovascular disease. Similarly, at the cellular level, the necessary induction of mitochondrial biogenesis in response to the various stressors through the PGC1alpha signaling pathway can eventually become maladaptive and detrimental to the cell. As evidenced by the cardiomyopathy observed in a murine model of cardiac PGC1-alpha overexpression, accumulation of abnormally proliferated mitochondria is a characteristic feature of mitochondrial myopathies described as ragged red fibers, whereas increased mitochondrial biogenesis has been observed in the hearts of diabetic animal models. So, a really great quote here, the first piece of it, just describing very clearly that again, while glucocorticoids are necessary for immediate response to stress. And they describe it as survival, which is true. If we didn't have these adaptive pathways, as soon as our demands exceeded our supply, we would die. So it's great that we have these, but they come at a major cost over time. And you see that very clearly in the pharmaceutical situations of administering glucocorticoids over time, as well as in Cushing syndrome, which is a disease that is characterized by elevated glucocorticoids over time, elevated cortisol. And so that, they say very clearly, is associated with essentially completely destroyed metabolic function and all of the disease processes that come with it. So that's very clear and I think very much depicts and illustrates what goes on when you continuously activate acute stress over time. And then they describe it on the cellular level, on the molecular level, as far as what's going on and the adaptive pathways. And they talked about, you know, previously about how activating the PGC1 alpha signaling pathway leads to mitochondrial biogenesis and and on from there and that that's what goes on in the acutely stressful situations then they described that this happens in excessive amounts in disease states so they mentioned diabetic animal models that have increased mitochondrial biogenesis uh, and then they described one other situation of cardiomyopathy uh, with pgc1 alpha overexpression which we talked about Yeah, we've talked about both of these situations and not only mitochondrial biogenesis, but also autophagy, something that you see in these situations. and Essentially, in any disease process, any degenerative state, you see excessive activation of these signaling pathways, all of the stress pathways, all the adaptive pathways, the ones that are supposed to trigger the hormetic response, and yet they aren't able to do it because they're in such degenerated states. And so this comes back to that hormesis discussion that we had and articles that i have written and everything, again, just showing that. The idea that the way to get out of dysfunction and the way to get out of diseased or degenerative states is to increase the activity of these pathways is ludicrous and entirely illogical because those pathways are already overactive in these states because of the constant stress, the constant adding up cumulative acute stress without any proper recovery or anything like that uh, over time is what leads to those states in the first place. So the idea that we want to be increasing further acute stressors and creating further chronic stress. To improve these situations is the exact opposite of what we want to be doing and is clearly explained here. And so, yeah, I think this is a really great uh, quote that, again, just gets really opposes the hormetic view entirely.
1: Yeah. And I just one thing I want to add here is the specifically to your point on the necessity of glucocorticoids. If you another Besides Cushing syndrome, which is an excess of glucocorticoids, which cause this whole host of negative problems, particularly metabolic syndrome, cardiovascular disease, et cetera, in an absence of glucocorticoids, you get something called adrenal crisis or Addisonian crisis if you have Addison's disease, which is an adrenal deficiency. And essentially, it's categorized by like uh, convulsions from hypoglycemia, a whole bunch of electrolyte abnormalities, um, low blood pressure vomiting, diarrhea, passing out, um, and it can actually lead to death. And basically what happens, what it's triggered by is somebody with weakened adrenal function, winding they're exposed to a stressor and their body's unable to cope with that stressor because they can't put out enough glucocorticoid to deal with the stressor. So the glucocorticoid's job is to help mobilize resources as we discussed during a stressor or a, when a more prolonged or serious stressor. And when when you're when your body doesn't have those glucocorticoids in that stress situation, you essentially will, can die. But on the flip side, a chronic activation of that stressor consistently mobilizes resources and upregulates these pathways like PGC-1 alpha, and that also leads to dysfunction. So it's kind of there's a kind of a balancing act in these situations where you want to have like an exposure to cortisol and the catecholamines in a short stressful period of time is necessary. But too much uh, chronic exposure to those hormones actually creates dysfunction. One, dysfunction. one of the dysfunctional pathways to discuss is PGC-1-alpha. And again, the upregulation of mitochondrial biogenesis that we're seeing here is to help us to oxidize or utilize the substrate that we're producing. It's, 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 an, it's a necessary response to increase energy output. Um, but this doesn't necessarily mean that that's an ideal thing to be going on. Um, and it, that's evidenced by this long-term outcome of upregulation of mitochondrial biogenesis and PGT one alpha causing cardiomyopathy in rats. Or basically what they're say- showing is that in diabetic models, um, in, in diabetic animal models, they actually see increased uh, mitochondrial biogenesis. So it doesn't, that's increased bio- mitochondrial biogenesis is not always a good thing. The question is, why are the mitochondria, why is increased production of mitochondria occurring? Is it a, is it occurring because you are up regulating your your energy expenditure to meet a stressful situation, and you need to cr- produce more mitochondria to to oxidize more substrates as being liberated, or is it occurring because you know for for a litany of other reasons? So it's always important to look at why it's occurring there, and then also what the effects are, because it, it doesn't necessarily always mean it's a good thing.
0: Yeah, well, and and to clarify, like kind of that balance that you're getting at, and. When we want to be stimulating this pathway or these sorts of stress pathways, the pathways and our adaptation is always beneficial in that it allows for survival, but is never beneficial to our long term health in that we want to be activating, actively encouraging these pathways. So through stress means. So we never want, even in acute situations, we don't want to be doing things that are stressful and force the activation of these things and force the short term increase in glucocorticoids or adrenaline or anything else uh, because of the these negative harmful effects. And so the, the kind of flip side is that we can activate these things in the context of uh, elevated energy first, right? So it's not that we are upregulating energy expenditure to meet a demand, but rather we have proper substrate and proper uh, metabolic function and all the things required to drive energy production that will increase our ATP, which will end up increasing reactive oxygen species and activate the same pathways, but through a completely different context. And so again, we never want to be encouraging the activity of these pathways through stress, even if they're acutely beneficial and that they prevent us from dying. Uh, but if we're doing it by increasing our energy production, that's a different story in a completely different context. And that's what we described in the, in those Hermesis episodes.
1: Yeah. And for as another example, thyroid hormone will increase mitochondrial biogenesis. So, that would be a state categorized by high thyroid hormone would be different than a state categorized by high glucocorticoids. Um, and, well, the catechol means the dependent, but the, the reason the, it's not that you're, you're never going to have, I don't think it's possible to go through life without having spikes in glucocorticoids and adrenaline at one point. So, it's necessary to have for survival. But yeah, the goal isn't to push that system for mitochondrial biogenesis. It's just unavoidable that that system is like going to be activated at different points in the life. And the goal is to minimize the effects of that system and to not have it chronically activated over a long period of time and essentially deplete the body of its reserves. And just
0: because people get hung up on this acute versus chronic idea, doing things intentionally uh, that are acute to activate this pathway is still harmful, ext- it's still completely... Uh, at odds with our physiology, when it is done in with the intention of increasing those stress pathways, uh, as opposed to as you said, this being a byproduct of other of things that are otherwise beneficial. And that's that's again a, uh, an important kind of view to take. But but we kind of explain that in more detail in the hormesis episodes, and it's uh, you know yeah. kind of explain some examples and the nuance there. And, and yeah, and so you see, like you mentioned, the thyroid difference, right? And so you can see some of the differences molecularly in terms of how are these things being activated. Are you blocking the electron transport chain? Are you blocking ATP production? And is that what's leading to PGC1-alpha activity and uh, you know leading to mitochondrial biogenesis? Or are you doing it by increasing ATP? So you see differences molecularly like that, but you see the representation in the hormones. So if you're doing something that's supporting thyroid hormone activity and increasing these pathways versus something that's increasing adrenaline and cortisol and increasing those pathways. That's a clear sign that the adrenaline and cortisol one is going to be doing this through stress, whereas the thyroid hormone one tends to be doing it by supporting metabolic function and increasing energy production. So that's, you can kind of see it on both levels and both are helpful when you're trying to evaluate whether something is more on one side or the other. Yeah. All right. So moving on in the chronic stress uh, side of things, they then, uh, so they're talking a little bit about things that go on during um, stress and our ability to deal with stress and how glucocorticoids are involved there. And they mentioned that glucocorticoids induce uh, increased appetite and food-seeking behavior. And they're talking about this in terms of psychological stress uh, or just stress in general. They said that stressed individuals report a preference for sweet and savory foods and binge eating. And they mentioned that these metabolic effects are essential in replenishing energy reserves acutely after stressful activity such as intense exercise. Then they say, however, a craving for high sugar-containing and fat-containing comfort foods during chronic psychological stress can be deleterious. Comfort foods appear to reduce anxiety by reducing activities of the HPA, the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis, and of the anxiogenic corticotropin-releasing hormone, CRH, system of the amygdala. So they describe that basically having carbohydrates and fats Which we consider, especially together, to be comfort foods, are really effective at turning off our stress systems. Of course, they are caught in this idea that that is going to lead to fat gain, and that's what they say afterward that that's why that's actually bad. Uh, But we've explained why that's not the case. I'm not going to, you know, we've had, you know, multiple episodes uh, describing that. But yeah, turning off the stress systems when they get activated by replenishing fuel and replenishing energy is the absolute best thing that you can do. It minimizes the stress. And they're basically describing that our own reasons for having hunger and taste preferences toward those things is because they're really effective at producing energy, turning off the stress systems, and stopping the stress. And so, uh, yeah, they're kind of phrasing it as a good thing in the short term and a bad thing in the long term. But I think it's just kind of a misguided view, a very common view, but we've uh, you know kind of explained why that is uh, not what causes fat gain.
1: Yeah. And, and the... Something in, in interesting to point out. I think that I have a article on my computer here, and it's like it's titled something along the lines of like using uh uh like sweet foods or sucrose decreases the the stress system in like IBS patients or something like that. There's an article around that, and then there's also articles about using sucrose in babies for pain because it lowers mm-hmm. the stress response. Um, I don't essentially the, the from my perspective taking in carbohydrates and fats signals to those other hormones uh the catecholamines and glucocorticoids that you don't need we don't need them as much to liberate the substrate because we already have it coming in now whether this causes fat gain or not towards the abdomen i I actually think that it doesn't particularly depending on what foods that you're reaching for um what what you actually see the the other thing they say in the next line is they say the shift of caloric intake to carbohydrates and lipids together with a high concentration of glucocorticoids and insulin move fat depots from a more peripheral to a more central distribution, leading to abdominal obesity and associated increased comorbidity, metabolic syndrome, type 2 diabetes and cardiovascular disease, and mortality. Okay, that's does that happen? Yes, but you don't need to have carbohydrates and lipids together with glucocorticoids to do that. You could just have glucocorticoids, and the glucocorticoids will do that themselves. And we talked mm-hmm. about this in the fatty liver series. And essentially, the glucocorticoids caused fatty liver by liberating the fat tissues from the, the fat, uh, fatty acids from the fatty tissues of the body and then over flooding the liver with those fatty tissues. And then it, it winds up creating an abdominal obesity or visceral adiposity. So the glucocorticoid hormones will do that themselves. I don't think that it's just the shift, it, the increased consumption of carbohydrates and lipids. Now, if you're going to increase your consumption of those things, sure. Will it increase your body fat? Sure, it will, if you, especially if you overeat on those things. However, what I think it is more likely here is if you overconsume a lot of the garbage processed foods during these states, which are often concocted to be sweet, fatty, et cetera, at the same time, you can cause other metabolic aberrations and then increase your body fatness with those. And I think, that, I think that people tend to see that, right? When they come from low carb or keto and they hop into like a more metabolic or bioenergetic approach, a lot of the food choices that can be discussed in that, in that frame are to some extent processed foods. So, so, and it's not that they're necessarily bad, but coming from that state, there's already a predisposition with those elevated hormones. And then if you're having any gut issues or things like that, you're, you can exacerbate those problems, which is why my, the recommendation from our end would most likely be to focus your carbohydrate intake on fruits and fruit juices and things along those lines that are less likely to cause a microbial disturbance while simultaneously providing nutrition and vitamins and minerals and turning off the stress response because you want to have the carbohydrates and fat you want to turn off that stress response that's the stress response is driving the adiposity so if you mm-hmm. don't turn off the stress response with carbohydrates and fats what do you do you just continue to have the stress response and then you continue to still put that central adiposity on and develop all of these other issues maybe with slightly less body fat if i don't know it may be not because it, depending on the Uh, essentially what it comes down to is what's the carbon fat source that you're using here you need the carbs and fats to turn off the stress response and replenish stores and you want to do that but you want to make sure in this state you are in a in a delicate metabolic situation because you have these chronic elevation of these hormones you want to make sure that you're doing it in in a intelligent way instead of you know like a kind of free-for-all um type of way and focusing on less nutrient-dense carbohydrate sources and fat sources that may also be problematic for the microbiome and depending on the fat source may actually make the mitochondrial situation worse. So it what it I guess the key points to, to drive home here, what is actually driving that movement towards the metabolic syndrome, cardiovascular disease, et cetera, it's the the extended stress response from the glucocorticoids and catecholamines. What turns that off? Carbohydrates and fats. What, ha- what do people crave when they're under those stress responses? Carbohydrates and fats. Why? Because it turns off the stress response. What that means is using carbohydrates and fats is actually helpful during a stressful period, but it's important to use the right types of carbohydrates and fats so that you can minimize the extended effects of the, these hormones because you're in a kind of a delicate situation metabolically. And that's essentially what it comes down to. I, I disagree with their interpretation here overall. Um, because they kind of blame it on the combination, and it's not necessarily the combination, it's more that hormonal pathology.
0: Right. And all the things underlying that which you were getting at, the things that inhibit energy production in the first place, which are going to cause substrate to be driven toward fat. And that's what we focused on during those weight loss series the that weight loss series. And it's funny because they completely contradict themselves, right? They say carbs and fats are really effective at turning off the stress response, turning, you know, decreasing glucocorticoids uh at those higher levels you know, at the like higher up at the things that, you know, the hormone levels that increase the glucocorticoids at the first point uh, in the first place. And they say, well, when you have carbs and fat and high stress hormones, then you're going to increase fat gain, even though they just said that those things decrease fat gain. So there's a missing piece there that is a really critical one, which is that if you are having adequate amounts of carbs and fats, but you still have high stress hormones, that is a sign that you are not actually using those carbs and fats efficiently in order to produce energy and turn off the stress hormones. And that is a sign of dysfunction, of metabolic dysfunction, and that would need to be addressed. And that's what you were getting at, that that can happen in people who are chronic dieters or coming from low carb, where they've got the really low thyroid activity, really high stress hormones, uh, generally low reproductive hormones to begin with, plus maybe a gut issue, right? Endotoxin is really effective at blocking that conversion to energy, which is why it's so tightly associated with metabolic dysfunction. Uh, Polyunsaturated fats, the same thing. So if... You are having those things together. Yes, it'll cause fat gain, but it's not because of the carbs and fats. It's because those carbs and fats are not being properly used. And yeah, so it's it's not at all a combination. It's not even it's not overeating either, overfeeding against, or overeating would still be a result of not being able to produce energy effectively from those substrates. So the issue comes back to inability to properly produce energy or efficiently produce energy, not the presence of carbs and fats.
1: Yeah. And the presence of carbs and fats here would actually be helpful because right. they'd be, they would lower the stress response and hopefully help you to get to a place where you're able to produce adequate energy.
0: Yeah. So anything else to add to to this part? Uh,
1: Nope.
0: So this next piece, again, a kind of smaller detail, but something I think is worth mentioning. So they say, if psychological stress can lead to oxidative stress, the opposite seems also to be true, so the opposite there being that oxidative stress can lead to psychological stress. And they say, Overexpression of two antioxidant enzymes, glyoxalase and glutathione reductase 1, in the mouse brain was associated with increases in anxious behavior. Thus, oxidative stress can, could contribute to the complex control of anxious behavior and related conditions such as panic disorder, obsessive-compulsive disorder, post-traumatic stress disorder, and social and other phobias. So there's a few reasons why I wanted to highlight this, why I wanted to discuss this. One is this relationship between our mental health, our psychological health, how we see the world, our mood, and what's going on physiologically. And they're talking about it in terms of oxidative stress, but there's other features of our physiology as well that are going to directly affect those things, you know, those things in terms of our mental health. And we described this before, I'll link back to the episode where we talked a little bit in more detail about mental health in terms of our physiology and otherwise but yeah i think it's a really important piece to highlight and then i also like this is very similar to what they said uh earlier in terms of the diabetic state and the cardiomyopathic state where there's elevated uh defense reactions that are seen as beneficial from the hormetic side where they mentioned that elevated antioxidant enzymes is associated with increased anxious behavior which they're saying is the result of increased oxidative stress so they're basically like that's Again, flipping, it's completely uh, in contradiction with the hormetic view. It's saying that acti- activating those pathways and increasing the antioxidants to the point that they've put out the oxidative stress, right? It's just showing elevated antioxidants, just elevated adaptive pathways. And that was associated with like a degenerative state that resulted in anxious behavior. And so it's cool to see that they're doing it physio- like, kind of physio- physiologically first and then that affecting the psychology, but also just funny that they're highlighting the increased adaptive response as a sign of the oxidative stress and as a sign of dysfunction. Uh, And I will say what, you know, they mentioned panic disorder, OCD um, and, and, you know, a handful of other uh, anxiety related disorders. And I've certainly seen dramatic effects in terms of mood, in terms of anxiety and other mental health related uh, issues, depression from getting physiological things in place. And so, I wanted to highlight that as well, but uh, yeah. Do you have anything to add to this?
1: Nope. It's pretty, I mean, this one's pretty straightforward. Uh, essentially. The, I, I think the one important thing to add actually is that the mental function, mood, thought processes, et cetera, are directly dependent upon the physiology. And right. I guess, I mean, this, there, there's the whole argument of like the brain or the mind being separate from the body. Um, mm-hmm. I'm not going to, well, I guess, I guess I'll cover it here, but I don't think that there's any separation. I think that consciousness is a product of the physical structure and the processes that are involved in that structure. So if you alter those processes, then you can, then you then you effectively alter the consciousness. There's not some separation where you just have mind and then you have tissue and the mind inhabits the tissue. It's the, the mind is a product of that tissue. So mm. the when you have situations where the tissue is undergoing oxidative stress and largely the oxidative, well, the oxidative stress can be derived by a lot of things, but usually it's something in some perturbation in the metabolic function. Then you also see subsequent um, perturbation in the mental function. So, I mean, it's not surprising here that the, that the things go both ways, that oxidative stress can cause psychological issues and psychological issues, psychological issues can cause oxidative stress. and, like that there's a blurred line between, between what's causing what I think in a lot of circumstances. Um, for sure. Yeah. And they, they talk about it above. They say prolonged physical and psychological stress can and each, each induce oxidative damage. And one recent study, psychologist, uh psychological stress in mothers and children affected by chronic illness was associated with increased blood concentrations of oxidative stress markers and genetic modification, namely telomere shortening. Um, Telomeres are a different story, but they go on to basically say that mitochondrial DNA um is much more prone to oxidative stress. So they would also expect that the mitochondrial DNA would have been would have had issues as well. So just something interesting to note there, and I guess a little like a, I mean a philosophical <laughs> question to some extent.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And something we did dig into in that previous episode of mental health, kind of talking exactly as you said about there not being such a separation between mind and body, so to speak. What you were just mentioning there is a nice segue into this next feature here, which is we're just going to talk about this for a brief moment. We're talking about kind of inheritance of the stress response through mitochondrial DNA. And we've talked about this. We've kind of talked around this before. We haven't done a a deep dive yet, but we're going to in terms of heredity, evolution, genetics. Um, But basically, kind of hear what they're describing and highlighting and illustrating is that our environment directly affects our health through all these mechanisms that we're describing that center around energy availability. And that then does get passed down as a way to further adapt to the environment. And they talk about that happening through mitochondrial DNA. And so they're talking about mitochondrial DNA haplogroups, which are just kind of sets of, of mutations that have occurred in response to an environment. And so Here they describe haplogroup H. And so haplogroup H, the most common in European populations, has been associated with enhanced respiratory chain activity and more uncoupled mitochondria. These qualities would enable the additional heat generation required to adapt to colder climates during evolution, as well as the enhanced ability to fight infection, hence offering a selective advantage that would explain the predominance of that haplogroup in European populations. Indeed, recent uh, provocative findings connected mtdna mitochondrial dna haplogroup with sepsis-associated mortality namely the haplogroup h was a strong independent positive predictor of disease outcome in patients admitted to the intensive care unit for severe infection these intriguing findings open new frontiers in mitochondrial and population genetics and again something really important to highlight here is that this was environment first so it's not like somebody has just randomly gotten some gene and they're stuck with it Uh, instead this is all just basically looking at our genes as a way to adapt further to our environment and it gets passed down but can continually change and that's what they're describing here something that happened in a way to adapt to colder environments uh in, and forcing more heat generation and also happens to be better at fighting infections and i don't think those things are so coincidental right because you're going to be much more susceptible to infections when you have lower body temperature when you're in a colder environment and when you have to make adjustments in order to deal with the cold meaning driving more energy toward generating heat as opposed to generating or uh more substrate toward generating heat as opposed to generating energy there's an energy cost there and so that choice you know if you only have a certain set unit of of substrate available and you're driving more of it toward heat and less toward energy there's a cost to the energy then it's exactly what we talked about if you were you know in the fitness series if you were uh Forcing excessive exercise and putting a ton of energy toward that, that's less energy for the rest of your physiology to function well. So, just because there is an adaptation in this way doesn't make it good or bad, but it makes it better for adapting to a cold environment, which is part of why we would say that you don't want to be so adapted to a cold environment. And it's better to manipulate your environment so that it's warmer, whether you're doing that by having a heater in your house or moving to a warmer place or having certain types of foods or, you know, wearing clothes on from there. But yeah, this is an interesting presentation of what happens when you have to adapt to being better at uh, you know, fighting infections or dealing with cold. And they don't talk about the detriments here. They're
1: just talking
0: about kind of the presentation in terms of those things. But uh, yeah, an interesting
1: piece. Yeah, I don't, I'm, the, most, the most interesting thing for me there is just that the interaction between environment and, uh, and the genetics. You know, cause there's this yep. idea, there's this, the, the genetic theory t- tends to, or the, the theory itself is essentially that you just have a series of random mutations and then the people who, the people who have those mutations that they happen to just be better for that environment or whatever it is randomly. And then those are the ones that, that survive. So it's like somewhere randomly some guys, mitochondrial, or actually it actually have to be a woman because it's passed on by the mother. But some mm-hmm. women just randomly got a mitochondrial DNA mutation and it happened to increase their ability to deal with the cold and then it passed down and then her children just survived better than everybody else's, which is just absurd. Like the, the actual idea that that's how things work is absolutely ridiculous. Just even saying out loud sounds ridiculous it, that uh, all those things just happened by chance. What seems more likely is that the the organism was placed in an environment, they were exposed to more cold, and then the organism's basically structure at, over time adapted to better handling the cold, and then it was passed it through. And it's it's not just the one organism adapts, but it's the organism's adapts over a course of a couple generations or so, um, mm-hmm. passing on to their kids different ad, the survival advantages and whatnot. And this is especially interesting to me that the, a genetic idea or perhaps the genetic dogma would be considered here in light of the discussion of genetic of mitochondrial genetics up above where they say let me see if i can find it the first paragraph says moreover enzymatic deficiency from a specific genetic alteration usually occurs when the percentage of mutated mitochondrial dna reaches 60 to 90% depending on the mutation so here they're they're talking about like a mitochondrial mutation and in, in a genetic in the context of genetic dogma which would assume that you need to have this mutation occur and then it that's random it just happens whenever and it gets passed down and and it happens to confer some type of random advantage and then the the, the subsequent generations just outcompete all the other generations it it, it just is like it sounds ridiculous but th- then to go on and discuss that in order for uh in order for uh a specific enzymatic deficiency or a change in the mitochondria to like function to occur, you need to have sixty to ninety percent mutation of the mitochondrial DNA. So you'd have to have a massive alteration in the DNA randomly. And and the when they talk about the the, the alterations of mitochondrial DNA here, the way they discuss it is through oxidative stress or damage, and it actually actually not being a good thing. So you need to have some type of like terrible circumstance. To drastically mutate the mitochondrial DNA and then its to somehow confer some protective advantage randomly that would then be passed on to future generations that outcompete other generations, like the whole idea is just insane but it's more like the or again the organism goes into the environment and it, the organism starts adapting to that environment and over generations you start to see changes that seems way more likely and makes much more sense overall in the context and I think that you know. I think we continue to see evidence for that. And I I find it, I mean, that's why I highlighted that point. Personally, I found it very interesting.
0: Yeah. And there are, there is, uh, you know, other evidence for that too, you know, where they change the environment of different organisms and see very clear, distinct changes in, uh, in mutations and, you know, changes in DNA expression that completely change even the outward appearance of the organism. So those are things, again, we'll have to dig into when we get into the evolution series something that i'm excited to do at some point but it's kind of keeps getting pushed farther down but there is some other great evidence for it too of course as you were saying this could be explained by randomness it doesn't seem like it makes a lot of logical sense but there is actual good evidence that it is not induced by randomness that we'll have to dig into in the future
1: yeah yeah the randomness just seems highly improbable
0: just yeah well and, and there's a lot of evidence that it's not even the case at all like that is not what's responsible for it but yeah yeah even on the surface doesn't seem to be very logical or probable at all so uh wrapping up here i think the only other thing to mention was just kind of their conclusion here i think we mentioned this earlier they still subscribe to the hormetic model up here they're talking about caloric restriction being a good thing and you know it, it's really crazy considering the rest of the paper because you would think that it would make it clear that that's not the way to go but anyway uh they conclude here and just wanted to highlight Uh, What they state is that low power or burned out mitochondria are associated with numerous diseases of public health significance, such as sepsis, the metabolic syndrome, and type 2 diabetes. Thus, it appears reasonable to envision a rapid increase in efforts to exploit the unique properties of mitochondria and the development of selective therapeutic agents aimed at increasing mitochondrial resilience to stress and preventing or alleviating the burden of many stress-related disorders. And of course, the kind of funny part here is that you know they have to come back to some sort of commercial pharmaceutical type uh, reasoning or or uh, solution, right? Where they mention uh, what was it the development of selective therapeutic agents aimed at increasing mitochondrial resilience to stress and and alleviating the burden of stress. And it's like we don't need some sort of very particular pharmaceutical agent to do those sorts of things. Uh, you can just do it by eating good food, avoiding polyunsaturated fats you know fixing your gut health eating enough food not calorically restricting moving you know exercising but in a a good amount not just to burn excessive amounts of calories you know reducing the excessive stress in your environment and on from there and of course there are certain supplements certain compounds that are certainly helpful along the way but the broad solution here is not just to be taking some pill that they come up with which undoubtedly will have to come at a cost. If it is making up for these things, because it, unless it is literally energy in a pill, unless it's literally some sort of absorbable ATP that you can take or infuse or something, which is just kind of with the way things work, is very far fetched uh, for that to actually work in a way that would help. Because it would have to get into the cell, and, and you know you don't want a lot of ATP just kind of randomly circulating and things like that. So that's not really reasonable at least currently. And, and if you are going to try to stop the adaptation to stress, and uh avoid the energy depletion that happens or or the response to the energy energy depletion and will have to come at a cost you can't just skip those steps because they're as they they described in this paper that's how we adapt that's how we survive that's how we respond to these things so that we we can continue to function so we don't want to block anything like that Um, and the only real way to improve resilience to it is by supporting Uh, Our ability to produce energy. And so, of course, there could be some therapeutics that help with that. Maybe they're going to block certain aspects of uh, polyunsaturated fats or maybe prevent them from being integrated into the cellular structure. Uh, Maybe things to block endotoxin absorption and whatnot. So, those things, I mean, if you're thinking about it in those terms, there could be things that help. And obviously, a lot of the supplements that we talk about help in those sorts of ways um, or help in other ways to support our ability to produce energy. But if the foundational things aren't in place, those things can only help so much.
1: Yeah. It's environmental manipulation. And like, there's a, com- there's a, you can affect the organism directly with all these random obscure compounds, but you can also just make sure the organism lives well, <laughs> which is yeah. ultimately what the outcome is. Good food, uh, low stress or lower, decreased stress in, uh, environments with lots of different types of in- interesting stimulation, um, relationships yep. for humans, relationships, sunlight, etc. Like, I think those things go a long way more so than this random mitochondrial gene therapy. The other thing is a yeah. lot of the stuff is like a lot of the problems and the chronic disease stuff that are discussed in these situations, they don't have to develop. The, the fact that they are developing is act, like clearly aberration and that wasn't seen before. The newer mm. and a lot of this, a lot of the stuff is related to the current environments. Excessive amounts of stress and then also just pollution and then crap diets, just like absolutely crap diets. So yeah. and a lot of that can come from a lot of people's a lot of a lot of these solutions can come from adjusting the diet and adjusting the lifestyle and, and the, at the most basic level. And then afterwards, then you can try to do more specific things if, if more if there is more needed there, depending on how far gone the indi- an individual system is. But the foundation, as you said, the foundational components have to be there first, because those are the things that went wrong in the beginning, I'd say nine times out of 10 to cause the dysfunction. The actual genetic mutation problems, like the genetic diseases that are extremely rare. They're extremely, extremely rare. So,
0: yeah. And when you consider our modern environment, typical things, where things are headed it's you know maybe for maybe the best solution currently is looking down that pharmaceutical route because it's only getting harder and harder for people to create supportive environments around them uh, unfortunately and of course like i think we all still can and i think there's always a lot that can be done but for the average person who is just kind of stuck in in all of it um you know maybe a pharmace- some sort of pharmaceutical that'll block the effects of pufa is going to be better than nothing but obviously as you're you're saying it's not fixing the root of the problem and none of these things would be problems in the first place if we created really supportive environments but uh yeah it's unfortunate that that's really not what not the way that things are oriented right now in fact they tend to be oriented the opposite way
1: yeah yeah i think it's a it doesn't it's not that the like these different pharmaceutical options or supplement options are bad i just don't think that they're foundational. For, for most oh, for situations sure. that's all so i think a combination is helpful
0: but yeah i'm not i'm like kind of I'm not saying it tongue-in-cheek but i'm not like actually saying that that's a good solution it's more like things are <laughs> like with where things are at uh it's you know things are unfortunately so far from optimal that you know i guess we're just kind of left with that that uh much worse solution if you want to call it that you know band-aid kind of approach but yeah i'm i think that is like i'm just I'm just it's supposed to be more of just a point, kind of a critique about where things are at societally, as opposed to actually support for that mode of intervention.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean the mode of intervention they discussed are kind of like they get extreme, right? Like mitochondrial DNA transplants. And like yeah. like, like giving mitochondria, like a mitochondrial transplant. Like it it's the it's the same let it's the same Western medicine ideology. Oh, yeah around how to do things just like now it's just getting to like m- like more minute levels right so it's like it's your heart is your heart's not working so we're not going to transplant your heart we're going to transplant your heart's mitochondria it's always just like we're going to cut something out or and give it like replace with something else or we're just going to mm-hmm. like upregulate the pgc1 alpha pathway or the tfam pathway or whatever it is like it's always something it's always this like very reductionistic we're going to hit this one pathway and just solve all the problems looking for some magic bullet and it i mean it makes for like (laughs) endless amounts of research but i haven't i'm not seeing like we're not seeing these magical things happen from these new fangled drugs or whatever like the immunotherapies and whatnot that that have been promoted and yeah
0: yeah and as you're kind of getting at too, so often when it's advertised as the thing that's going to work, the side effects are just like when you look at the pathways that are being encouraged more and more the the it's not getting any closer to actually being beneficial. it tends to be getting much farther away. you know the things that interestingly and probably not surprisingly, but the least harmful types of pharmaceuticals tended to be the older ones and the ones that were used. Uh, way early on and hadn't been continually manipulated and weren't as specific to just one pathway Uh, those ones tended to be generally more beneficial having less side effects but yeah the way things are headed is in that regard too just tends to be worse and worse especially when you're trying to get you know not even one drug for one disease but one drug for one pathway that's all you know that's increased in one disease things like that it
1: just tends to get worse and worse yeah well most of the most of the the most prominent drugs that are used currently are mostly anti-inflammatory things that are either blocking the cox and lox enzymes or blocking the ras cascade and then the other things are basically just like you know, up regulating pathways for disposals of glucose because the most the largest problems that we're seeing are uh can't or well, cancer but it's a little different the pathways that they try and hit there are another story um <laughs> it's heart disease diabetes And, um, those are probably the two biggest ones. And then like lung pathology, COPD and things like that. Uh, And a lot of the drugs that are treating those are blocking the RAS cascade, blocking the LOX and COX enzymes, or they're, uh, trying to simulate some type of anti-inflammatory function in the lungs. And then besides that, obviously infections, which is antibiotics. So all the, a lot of those drugs are still old or the ideology around how they should work are still old. And now they just have combinations the newer immunotherapies for autoimmune diseases or for cancer and whatnot <laughs> which the they they're questionable in their effectiveness overall and then also their side effect profile i mean those are very specific drugs that are blocking very minute pathways and have a whole as you said a whole litany of terrible side effects like increasing risk of cancer tuberculosis other rare infections etc and then a whole host of other very questionable <laughs> They're basically, are immunosuppressants. So, but all, a lot of it is coming down to blocking inflammatory pathways. It's literally what the drugs are trying to do. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And of course there are different ways to do that. Some much less harmful than others. Yeah. Yeah. All right. That's going to do it for this series, discussing the effects of stress on our mitochondria and metabolism. If you did enjoy it, please leave a like or comment if you're watching on YouTube And if you're listening elsewhere, please leave a review or five-star rating on iTunes. All of those things really do a lot to help support the podcast and are very much appreciated. To check out the show notes for today's episode, you can head over to jfeldmanwellness.com slash podcast, where you can take a look at the studies and articles and anything else that we referenced throughout today's episode. And if you are dealing with any low energy symptoms or chronic health conditions, this might be related to various uh, symptoms and conditions we've discussed today might be various symptoms or conditions that you've been trying to improve using stress or hormetic means. This could be things like chronic cravings or hunger, low energy or fatigue, chronic pain, weight gain, digestive symptoms, brain fog, poor sleep, hormonal imbalances, or various other low energy symptoms or chronic health issues. And if you are dealing with these issues, then I'd highly recommend you head over to jfeltmanwanness.com slash energy, where you can sign up for a free energy balance mini course where I'll explain how these different symptoms and conditions are really caused by a lack of energy, and will also walk you through the main things that you can do from a diet and lifestyle perspective to maximize your cellular energy and resolve these symptoms and conditions. So to sign up for that free Energy Balance Mini course, head over to jfaldmanwellness.com energy. And with that, I'll see you in the next episode.